Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. June 4th, 1976, the Phoenix Suns and Boston Celtics hooked up in one of, if not the greatest game in NBA history, or at least the NBA Finals. A Game 5 triple overtime thriller with contributions from the stars, unlikely heroes, and controversy. On this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, We talk about the game and look back at the careers of some of the stars from the game. Guys like Jojo White, Alvin Adams, and Paul Westphal. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 101, 6476. A breathtaking, marvelous game, one of, if not, the greatest game played in NBA history. Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the Phoenix Suns and Boston Celtics. The series between the Suns and Celtics was highly unlikely. The Celtics finished first in the Eastern Conference going 54-28, and and they rolled through the playoffs, taking out the Buffalo Braves four games to two and the Cleveland Cavaliers four games to two. The Phoenix Suns, who had finished third in the Pacific Division with a 42-40 record and were the fourth seed in the West, beat the Seattle Supersonics four games to two and then outlasted the defending NBA champions Golden State Warriors four games to three in the Western Conference Finals to make it to the NBA Finals for the first time in their history. However, Phoenix didn't have much luck with Boston over the years. In fact, the Suns had been swept by the Celtics in all four games they had played during the season and had lost six straight to Boston overall. And after the first two games of the 76 Finals, found themselves in a 2-0 hole and had now lost eight straight to Boston. But somehow, Phoenix put it all together in games three and four to knock the series at two games apiece going into a pivotal game five at the Boston Garden. 
The stars of this series were guys like Dave Cowens, Paul Silas, and Jojo White for Boston, along with Paul Westfall, Alvin Adams, and Ricky Sobers of the Suns. And I'm going to talk about the game, the series, and all six of the stars I just mentioned with my guest, Roger Gordon, who recently released a book about this game aptly entitled 6476, Phoenix Suns versus Boston Celtics. Roger remembers the game well, many details about the game, and interviewed so many about the game to put together this fun book. As always, before we get there, a few reminders for you. Please let your fellow sports fans know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Spread the word. Subscribe. Let everyone know about the podcast and the forgotten stars of yesteryear me and my guests talk about. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram or the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and give it a like. You can always find out more about every forgotten star I talk about at SportsFH.com. There I have links to more stories about the heroes, stats, an area where you can submit questions and suggest other stars you'd like to know more about. Again, that's SportsFH.com. And as always, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. Also, as always, thanks for listening. One other note for you, Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is where you can go to find several podcasts about sports history. A lot of great content for your listening pleasure. Okay, now let's get to today's show with my guest, Roger Gordon. Roger, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join once again. Thanks for having me back, Warren. Appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Hey, you know, you are mostly known for the books you write about Cleveland sports. Why did you decide to write about this game Game 5 of the 1976 NBA Finals between the Boston Celtics and the Phoenix Suns? Well, um, I became a a sports fan in 1976, and the Game 5 of that series, the one I wrote about, is the first, very first sporting event that I can remember watching on television. I probably watched some Indians games that year prior to that game, but I don't know for sure, but it's the first... (laughs) sporting event that I remember watching on television and I've always had sort of a fascination with that game because it had just about everything. um, The fans were such a huge part of that game Mm -hmm. and um, it had great shots. It had great passes. It had, uh, it had uh, three overtime periods. It was played at the, the old Boston garden. It had, a fan attacking a referee. Mm. Um, it had just incredible shots by Paul Westfall that it just, he, he was a great shot maker, but even the shots he was making in, in the, in the, that third overtime 
was just, uh, they were incredible. And they call it the greatest game in NBA history, and for good reason. Three overtimes, game six of the NBA Finals, it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. Actually, actually, it was game five. It was game Game five. five, I mean, game five, Um, correct. But uh, it was actually, yeah, it's not just, uh, it was actually voted that. It's just not, it's not just my opinion. And in 1997, I think, when the year the All-Star game was in Cleveland, the the last time it was in Cleveland, they I think they had the 50th anniversary all-time team there. And I think with uh, along with that, they, they voted, uh, they voted that game in 1997 as the greatest game ever played. So if they voted today, who knows? Right, I don't, I don't right. know. There have been a, there have been a lot of games since then. Sure, but it would it would be hard to top that game. Absolutely. Well, you know, Roger, as you know, the name of this podcast is Sports Forgotten Heroes. So while I talk about the forgotten stars of sports and forgotten teams, I very rarely stray from that subject. Um. I I recently did a podcast about a game that a gentleman wrote about called Nine Goals. It was a hockey game, and I used that game as a device to talk about certain stars who appeared in that game. And that's sort of what I'm going to do here. Game five of the 1976 NBA Finals, it certainly had rosters full of forgotten stars who had great careers, a great season, or perhaps even just one great game. So while we'll discuss the game, I think it's also we I think it's also important we talk about some of those who appeared in the game, and they include Paul Westfall, Ricky Sobers, Alvin Adams, Jojo White, Dave Cowens, and Paul Silas. So let's start with Paul Westfall. He actually played for the Celtics the year before, but during the offseason between the 74-75 season and the 75-76 season, the Celtics traded Westfall to the Suns. Why? Yeah, it was it was actually a blessing in disguise that he got traded uh, before the 75-76 season. He had spent his first three seasons in Boston as a backup guard. Um, he wasn't really getting anywhere career-wise sitting on the bench behind. I think it was Don Chaney and JoJo White. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, you know, he saw some playing time with Boston, but even when I, when I talked to him, he said, you know, unless there was an, if, unless there was going to be an injury, I was pretty much stuck on the bench because we had Chaney and JoJo White. Um, and actually the reason he got traded uh, had nothing to do with playing time. It had to do with the fact that Red Auerbach um, could not uh, come to an agreement with Westfall's agent. On a, maybe he was up for a new contract. I think he might have been up for a new contract or something, and he couldn't come to an agreement. So they traded him to Phoenix for Charlie Scott. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think if Charlie Scott. I don't know if he had played for Boston before, but anyhow, they and I think it was a one for one. There might have been an extra player, maybe a draft pick, but they were the main cogs of the trade. And a lot of people, uh, I know we're talking about Westfall, but a lot of people were wondering if 
Charlie Scott and Jojo White could cohabitate in the same backcourt because both of them were scorers, even though Jojo was more of a point guard. But anyways, back to Westfall. Um, so he got traded, and, you know, he, he was immediately the starting, uh, I think it was shooting guard for Phoenix. And, you know, at first he was a little hesitant going from a championship caliber team to a team that uh, was only entering its eighth season and had been in the playoffs just once. Mm-hmm. And it had mostly had mostly bad seasons prior to that. So uh, he got traded there and uh, he quickly acclimated himself to his new surroundings and he became happy as a Phoenix son. Well, Charlie, let's go back to Charlie for a second. He actually started his career in the ABA with the Virginia Squires and Okay. And um, okay. he was uh, he was pretty darn good. He averaged over thirty points a year. In fact, oh, yeah. in seventy one, seventy two, he was at thirty four and a half a points great, a game. He yeah, a, he was a great scorer. Yeah, and with Phoenix, he was pouring in the points, twenty five points a game. Yeah. Then he then he was traded to Boston, where he uh, averaged let's see, seventeen points a game, eighteen points a game, and then his. Uh, 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 output slipped a little after they had traded him to the Lakers and then finally to the Denver Nuggets. But um, right, what talk a little more if you can about um, how they you know how did Charlie change the fortunes if you can change the fortunes of the Celtics and what did Westfall mean to the Suns. I, w- I wouldn't say that Scott changed the forts of the Celtics. Yeah, exactly. The Celtics were were already pretty successful. They had uh, lost to Washington in the Eastern Conference Finals in '75. They had, you know, been regular title contenders really since Dave Collins came aboard in in, in '70. Although really '71, '72 is when they got back on the high horse. But uh, like I said, uh, a lot of people were wondering if he and JoJo could cohabitate together in Boston. But what a lot of people didn't know is that Charlie Scott and JoJo White were were best friends. And they played together, I think it was on the 1968 U.S. Olympics that were in, I think, in Mexico City. And apparently they were best friends. So the, the naysayers who thought they couldn't cohabitate in the same backcourt were wrong. Uh, Jojo was more of a point guard. Char- Charlie was more of a shooting guard, although Jojo could shoot the lights out too. Sure. It was almost like they just had two guards without a point guard or a shooting guard. That's that's what it was almost like. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, Charlie uh, really brought just an off- offense. He could just score in bunches. He he was almost like a street shooter. He could just score in bunches. He like you said, he averaged thirty one something points a game in the ABA and then he averaged like twenty five or twenty six some years in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And he uh I you know, he played a little defense too, but he was known known for his offense and um you know he, he really he really gave that backcourt a uh, a spark. Mm-hmm. And what about and West- as for yeah, go ahead. as for Westfall um, you know, there were, there were, we'll probably get into this later, but there were two or three, uh, moves that, uh, 
along the way in 75, 76, sort of pointed Phoenix in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And the first one was getting Paul Westfall. I mean, one of his teammates, I forget who, said he could, I don't know, he could shoot he could shoot the ball in a windstorm or in a rainstorm or something like that. <laughs> I mean, the, he, he just, uh, he was an incredible scorer. Um, he could, he could, uh, shoot the, the 17 footer. He could drive to the basket. He, he, he knew he was going to get drafted into the NBA when he was still in high school. He knew he had what it took. And he was, he was like a coach on the floor too. He was like an extra coach on the floor which we'll get to later with uh, what he did in the first, at the end of the first overtime. But um, he was like having an, another coach on the floor. He was like a player coach almost. And um, he, uh, uh, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, yeah. And, you know, and he, he, he always had a coach's mind even when he was playing. And that was proven when he, became, you know, the head coach of the Suns in the 90s and led them to the championship round mm-hmm. against Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Mm-hmm. But uh, he he brought he he just not only brought he not only was a great player and, and he played defense as well. He 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 had that mental side of the game where he he was it would almost seem like he was two steps ahead of whatever what was whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he brought he brought a lot of energy to the team with Boston. Yeah, 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 with Boston, as as you said, he was a part time player his rookie year. You know, he got into sixty games. He averaged just over four points a game. He upped that to seven right. points a game his second year. His yeah. third year was still under ten at nine, and then right. he goes to Phoenix, and suddenly yeah. he can play. 20 points a game, 21 points a game, 25, right. 24. He could pour, he could pour, the, you know, he could put the ball in the hoop and assists. He was yeah. averaging over five assists a game. So he was, he was a terrific ball player, a terrific uh, handler of the ball. How did he help to transform the away Right. Yeah. He, he just, just passed. passed away. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, not at all. Um, how did he help to transform the Suns? What were the Suns lacking um, that that he brought to the team that helped them get over the hump where they could make a run in the playoffs? Well, you know what? I'll be honest. I I, I can't remember who he replaced in the starting lineup. I don't. I, don't, I can't remember who he replaced, but. I mean, the, the the Suns, other than one year, I think when they made the playoffs with a losing record or something, they did have some over 500 years, but they were mostly a bad team in their first eight years. I, I think, you know, even I think he, you know, even though he didn't play much in Boston, he he got to observe. He got to observe mm-hmm. a lot and observe what it takes to be a title contender. And I think I think just being in Boston, being around guys like John Havlicek and Jojo White and Dave Collins, I think, I think that sort of rubbed off on him and he bought, he brought, and I hate to say championship pedigree, Mm. but he brought, he brought to Phoenix. um, I think he, you know, being in Boston for those three years, I think he, he sort of knew what it took to, uh, to to be a champion because he was in Boston when they won the championship in 74. So even though he hadn't been a starter, um, like you said, he brought energy. He, he was an incredible shot maker. He, he brought an intelligence. Um, he, he, he was 
you know, I'm guessing a lot of his teammates felt that he would be a future coach. I think one or two of them might have told me that. And he, he just, uh, you know, he may not have been the fastest guy in the world. He may not have been the strongest guy in the world. But he he just he just had that it factor, that, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that that winning it factor. And combine that with his shot making and his passing ability and, and even his defense. Um, it, uh, I'm not going to say that it uh, got Phoenix over the wall to be a contender because there were two other things that happened that season that sort of did that. But Westfall, Westfall's addition was step one in, in getting them getting him to be a contender for for the title. Well, they were putting together a pretty good team, and another star of that team for the Suns was Double A, the Oklahoma kid, Alvin Adams. I mean, yeah. this guy had a terrific career in college with Oklahoma. In fact, during his junior year, he set the school record with 21 double-doubles. Can you tell us about the type wow. of game that Alvin Adams possessed? Yeah, you know, he was only, um, I think he was only 6'9". He was kind of like Dave Cowens. They were both short centers. But Alvin Adams, um, I think he, he played under McLeod, John yep. McLeod at, yep. at Oklahoma. Um, you know, he was just a good old country boy um, who, you know, if you look at his stats, I think his rookie year was his best year of his career. It was. He averaged uh, with, 19 yeah. points a game, 9.1 yeah. rebounds a game. I mean, and and I wanted he, uh, to ask you about that um, in a moment. But, yeah, go on. Tell us more about his game. He he was the type of center who, I mean, he, he could hit. The, the the fifteen to seventeen footer, and sometimes he would bring guys like Bob Lanier and and uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. He would bring guys like that out uh, out from mm-hmm. underneath, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he he could play he could play from the outside, but then he could also he he even though he was only six nine and probably I don't know what he weighed maybe two hundred I don't know what he weighed but he was pretty thin. And he could bang, he could bang around with the big boys, and he got. I think you said he had nine rebounds a game his uh, mm-hmm. rookie year. So I mean, he could play from the outside. He could play on the inside. He he was an amazing passing center. He was just a great passing center. I don't know if you look at his assist total, but he was a great passing center. He he could shoot the ball. He could play defense, and he could play with the big boys, even though he didn't look like he could. He, yeah. he pretty much had it. He pretty much had it all. And another thing, him and Westfall, they they uh, they knew each other so well. Starting in that seventy five seventy six season, Westfall, they they just had a connection. They had a connection. If Adams, if they were running the break, Adams knew where Westfall was going to be, or Westfall knew where Adams was going to be, and they each got the ball to each other. They, 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 they just had a strong connection between each other, a good chemistry. Mm-hmm. Well, just to go back, he he averaged five point six assists per game. So yeah, he was he was uh, yeah, uh, you know quite the all-around type center. And I've done my research, Roger. He's one of only three players in Oklahoma history to score at least 40 points in a game and grab at least 20 rebounds, the other two being Wayman Tisdale and Blake Griffin. 
Can you, you mean forty point? Do you mean forty points and twenty rebounds in the same game? Yes. Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, Jeez. he he. Uh, you know, um, was he was he strong? I mean, how how you know? I don't. I don't think he was physically strong. If you, I don't, if, I don't know if you have his weight. Yeah, in he, front was of you, six, but nine, he was six nine. He was 210. Yeah, no, that that um, you know, a lot of his teammates who I interviewed and some of the, uh, some of the other people, they they were talking about how he really, you know, he <clears throat> you you looked at him. <laughs> excuse me, you looked at him. And you just wondered how how can he play with guys like Bob Lanier and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but he could. Mm-hmm. He could play with those guys, mm-hmm. and a big part of that was bringing them outside. Some of those guys like Lanier and Jabbar, they they were used to staying underneath. Mm-hmm. But Alvin Adams, he made up for his lack of strength with I think with 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 attitude and just his natural ability. He he had a natural a natural ability to play to play the position. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things about Alvin Adams, and you alluded to this just a moment ago, is his college coach was John McLeod. And McLeod went right. on to uh, Phoenix, and he took Alvin Adams with the fourth pick overall in the 75 NBA draft. So so John must have known something, and, and he, mu- he must have seen something in Alvin Adams that said, this guy can excel in the NBA. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get to speak with John McLeod. He's, going, he's got some health issues, mm-hmm. but I, I will tell you a little story that Alvin told me. Um, John McLeod wasn't the only one interested in him. After uh, after Adams' sophomore year at Oklahoma, he got back to his dorm room one day, and there were a couple guys waiting for him at his dorm room. And uh, they said, "Are you you Alvin Adams?" He said, "Yeah." And he, they said, uh, "We drafted you." And Alvin jokingly said that he he can't remember if he actually said this, but some, something to the, along the lines of, "I'm not really interested in going into the army." But, uh, <laughs> no, but basically I forget what team they were from. It was from an ABA team. And they said, they draft, we said, we drafted you and we want you to come play for us. And Alvin Adams basically said, I'm just having, you know, he said, play pro ball. I, I'm having too much fun in college. We're winning. I got a girlfriend and I, I want to stay in college. So he stayed in college for his junior year. And then after his junior year, John McLeod came calling. And then uh, they and he uh, he ta- he talked to his girlfriend who might have been his fiance by then and, and said, hey, you want to go to Phoenix and play play basketball in Phoenix? We're we're getting they're getting married and so he decided to leave after his junior year. I can't remember. It probably says it in the book if he eventually. Um, I think he eventually went back. I don't know if it was Oklahoma and earned his degree, but no. So anyhow, uh, mm-hmm. he ended up leaving. Oklahoma after his junior year. So my point was, was that John McLeod wasn't the only person interested in Alvin Adams. Well, you know, he had a heck of a career with the Suns. In fact, his number 33 is retired by the team. And he's a Suns all-time leader in several categories, including games played and steals. Would you say, when you look back at his career... Would you say he lived up to his potential as the fourth overall pick, especially considering his best year was his rookie season? Um, that's a good question. Did he live up to his potential as the number four overall pick? 
without having his stats in front of me. Yeah, you I know, he, for he his ever, career, I, he averaged 14 points a game. He averaged, okay. you know, seven rebounds I, a game. I just think that, and, and with his rookie season, and I'm taking nothing away from the guy, his rookie season being his best season, just seems to me like, you know, I think more might have been expected from him. But, of course, you know, he was in that Western Conference, which was pretty tough back then. Yeah, um, I don't think he ever averaged 20 points a game. I think no. the 19 was his best. Um, you know, 14.7 rebounds a game for a number four overall pick is probably, uh, you would probably say he didn't live up to his draft pick. But he he had, what kind of like Paul Westfall, he, he, had, he had a lot of intangibles. I think it, I, I don't think you could just look at his numbers. I think Westfall and Adams brought brought a whole bunch of intangibles in terms of attitude and natural talent. Um, stats wise, he probably didn't live up to the number four draft overall number four draft pick. But if you include the intangibles, he it's a little bit easier to to say that I think mm-hmm. with the number four pick. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. David Thompson was taken before him. Marvin Webster went number three. Uh, Chocolate Thunder went number five. Lionel Hollins. It wasn't a phenomenal who draft, was, you know. Who who was who was number two? Dave Myers. Dave Myers. He went to the Bucks, didn't he? Uh, he was picked by the Lakers, and. Um, Played for Milwaukee. He was not. Uh, yeah. He didn't uh, have. Well, he right. got hurt. He got hurt. I mean, he didn't have the most uh, phenomenal I career. Think, you know. I think Chocolate Thunder Daryl Dawkins. I think he was taken straight out of high school. He was out of mistaken. high school. Yep. He they took. He he came yeah. straight out of high school. He had a he had a pretty good career. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you look yeah. at it, you know, David Thompson for his career, he averaged twenty two points. And when you go down the the whole list, uh, Alvin Adams was uh, the um, number two that uh, out of that draft in points per game for a career and uh, rebounds, seven rebounds a game. Nobody else had more, including Chocolate Thunder. So, you know, I guess out of that season, maybe Alvin Adams was the right choice. Yeah, he 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 was perfect for that team. I think David Thompson may have been one of one of the greatest college players of all time. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. All right, let's uh, let's move on to another player. Not don't want to get too in depth, um, but it's a name I'm not sure how many people are familiar with. Ricky Sobers. Who was yeah, Ricky you know, Sobers? Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to interview interview him. He was playing some email games with me, and he. He said, okay, go ahead and email me your questions. So I did. He never responded. I did mm. again and again, and I finally just gave up. So I didn't get to interview Ricky Sobers. There's no profile on Ricky Sobers in the book. But what I will tell you is when when I said that the arrival of Westfall in Phoenix, um, well, really, and Adams, too, but uh, was the first thing to get the Suns over the hump to get to be a title contender, um, um, wait a second. Who are we talking about? Oh, Sobers. Ricky Sobers. Okay, so yeah, uh, we're skipping the the step two that got them uh, over the the top. Uh, well, I'll just say in early February of '76. I think it was on February 1st of '76. Uh, and we 
can talk about this more later, but the Suns traded uh, John Shoemate to Buffalo for Gar Hurd. Sure, and Gar that Hurd, was, yeah. That was, that was step two that got them over the hump. He, he, they needed a, they needed a, a, a rebounder underneath to go along with Curtis Perry. So that was step two. They started going on getting a lot of wins when uh, Gar Hurd got there. And then step three, the final step to get them to be a title contender, happened, I think, on February 20th of 76. That was when um, the original son, the first ever Phoenix Suns player, Dick Van Arsdale, got hurt, I think, in a game in New Orleans. And uh, on the bus ride to the airport, I think it was on the bus ride to the airport, everybody was down and quiet because they knew Van Arsdale was going to be out for a while. And um, John McLeod got up and uh, went, walked up and down the aisle and basically said, you know, well, what do you, what do you guys want to do? Do you, do you want to, you know, do you, do you want to win or do you want to, you know, do you want to, are you going to give up because, because we lost one of our players, you know, what do you want to do? I think we can win. And, and, and right about that time is when uh, Ricky Sobers got his chance with Finn Arsdale uh, getting hurt. Sobers uh, joined, he was a rookie and he joined the starting lineup. I forget where he went to college, but he joined the starting UNLV. lineup. UNLV. UNLV, okay. Um, and Ricky Sobers, um, he was the enforcer. He was so happy that he got his chance, at least from you know what his teammates told me. And he could, he could score. I'm not really sure about his defense, but he could score the ball, and he could bring the ball up to court. And it was now him and Westfall in the backcourt. And Ricky Sobers was the enforcer. If there was a scrum, <clears throat> excuse me, if there was a scrum or any kind of melee on the court, you you could be certain that Ricky Sobers was going to be part of that. He, like I said, he played played with a chip on his shoulder, and he brought an intensity. You know, um, he brought an attitude. He he gave he gave the Suns an attitude. You didn't want to mess with Ricky Sobers. Mm. And in the in the meantime, he could also shoot the ball. I'm guessing that he averaged about 12 or 13 points a game in 75, 76. Yeah, he averaged, sure. he averaged nine points a game during the regular season. But against the Celtics, he upped that to just over 14 a game. So he had a heck of a series. Oh. Okay. But anyway, so, yeah, he, he, he uh, well, you know, it's not just my opinion or what I was told because as soon as that uh, – as soon as Sobers took over for Van Arsdale, I don't know, they might have gone on a seven-game winning streak or seven out of eight or something, and that was the final step they needed to take that got them over the wall to get them to actually uh, be contenders. Uh, West, mm-hmm. Westfall and Adams were number one, uh, Gar Hurd was number two, and Ricky Sobers was number three. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, you know, it happened by accident because Van Arsdale got hurt. But um, I think uh, John McLeod was probably pretty thrilled at what Ricky Sobers brought to brought to the team at that point in the season because that was February 20th. So there was really only about a mm. month, about five weeks left in the season or something like that. And they started playing a lot better. Now, Van Arsdale did come back toward the end of the season. And I'm pretty sure he played in the playoffs, too. Uh, but I'm pretty sure the Sober stayed the starter for the rest of the season, including the postseason. 
Well, we can't hit on everybody, and you already mentioned Gar Hurd and, and the acquisition of Gar. I, I do want to uh, switch over to a couple players on the Celtics now, beginning with JoJo White. I mean, he's got to be one of the quietest Hall of Famers in Celtics history. Tell us more. Did you say one, you say one of the quietest? Quietest as far as... Um, recognition uh, outside oh, okay. of Boston that in, in, in that, you know, when you think of the Boston Celtics, you think of, well, recently, you know, uh, uh, Larry Bird, but, you know, you think of Havlicek, you think of Bill Russell, you know, Jojo White isn't the first one that comes to mind. What kind of game did he have? Tell us about Jojo White's game. Yeah, he had passed away, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him either, but, um, you know, he was, uh, from what I learned and remember, he, he, him and John Havlicek just had um, an endless amount of energy. Um, JoJo White in that game five of the finals, I think he played um, 50, 53, 58, 63. I think he played like 60 or 61 minutes of that game. Mm. He went three overtimes. And um, he he was he just had a lot of energy and um, you know he could shoot the ball he could pass the ball he could play defense he was just a he was just I think he's a Hall of Famer isn't he No doubt yes he is he is a Hall of yeah. Famer I mean he was just he just had it all as as a point guard he he had he had everything he could he could shoot the lights out even though he was a point guard and like I said with him and Charlie Scott it was almost like it was just two guards without a point or a shooting guard. But um, if you want to say for sure, I, I think JoJo was the point guard. But uh, he was just a, a Hall of Fame guard. He could he could do everything. And uh, just to tell you how exhausting that game five was, there was a point in the third overtime, I think, where somebody for Phoenix was shooting a free throw, and JoJo was actually sitting on the court because he was so tired. Um, but uh, and one of his teammates told me uh, at halftime, I think it was halftime of every game, he would smoke a cigarette in the <laughs> locker room. But um, but then times were different back then, yeah. I guess. But uh, um, like I said, he, he just he just had it all. He could shoot, he could pass, he could play defense. He was quick, he was fast. Um, he was a team player. He didn't he didn't mind at all that Charlie Scott came aboard. And he had to sort of share the the ball in the front court with Charlie Scott, so he was just a great all around guard. Mm-hmm. You know, you tell a story of how proud a person he was, even down to the way he wore his socks, and how proud yeah. he was to have his parents in the stands. So, what kind of person was he? So he he, he was a he was a great guy. His, he his uh, I think I think I can't I'm trying to remember, but. I, his his mom, I don't know if his dad too. I think his parents um, didn't show a lot of interest in his basketball in high school, and then he finally got his mom to come to a game, if I'm not mistaken. And after the game, he had a really good game. And after the game, his mom walked up to him, and instead of saying that was great, son, she commented on how one of his socks was. Uh, 
was sort of rolled down and, and his socks, <laughs> one sock was up and one sock was down. So I, ever since that happened throughout his career, he always made sure his socks were, were even, <laughs> but, uh, I think he went to Kansas, University of Kansas. Yes, he did. He and, followed um, in the footsteps of Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah. And um, and he must have been a heck of a high school ball player, uh, Roger. He had over yeah, 300 yeah, scholarship offers. Is that is that what was in the book, 300 scholarships? Yeah, over 300 scholarship offers. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so the, the Celtics take him in the first round of the 69 draft. How quickly did he acclimate to the Celtics' culture? And, again, what made him so special? What made JoJo White a Hall of Famer? He acclimated very quickly. Now, the, in, in, that, in the 69-70 season and I think the 70-71 season, which was Dave Collins' rookie year, um, the Celtics, in, they were sort of in between their – run of 11 of 13 titles and ending in 68, 69. And then when they became a good team again in 71, 72, so 69, 70 and 70, 71, they were either below 500 or right at 500 or something like that. So they were sort of rebuilding years with Jojo coming aboard in 69 and Dave Towns coming aboard in 70. So, you know, with those two players, um, the Celtics and a new coach and Tom Heinsohn taking over for Bill Russell, the Celtics, you know, were building, were building what would be, well, sort of another dynasty um, with the cornerstones being JoJo and Dave Cowens. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. up, up through most of the seventies, Dwight and Cowens were two of the best players on the team and uh, from what I from what I remember, JoJo acclimated himself pretty quickly. You know, he I'm pretty sure he became a starter right away. He was. I'm not 100 yeah. percent sure about that, but uh, you know, he he could shoot the lights out. He had boundless energy. Um, he, you know, from what I remember, his teammates telling me he was a good teammate and a good person. And uh, you know, that's about it for JoJo. Well, final questions plural before we get into the game first do dave cowens and paul silas get enough enough credit for the careers that they had i mean especially that year that series cowens was a monster yeah he was his rebounding numbers were ridiculous um you know i think uh uh cowens is in the hall of fame but silas is not right Mm -hmm. okay so, you know, Cowens, I, I think it's hard to it's hard to say that somebody who's a Hall of Famer doesn't get the credit he, he deserves. I think Dave Cowens gets gets the credit he deserves. I think Paul Silas, Silas might not get the credit that he deserves. He uh, he was a force. I mean, he could rebound too. Him him and Cowens were both rebounding monsters. Although Cowens was having games in the in the playoffs of like you know, 17 points and 24 rebounds, ridiculous numbers. Uh, but uh, so I would say that Paul Silas maybe would be uh, a good episode for your Sports Forgotten Heroes uh, mm. podcast, maybe Paul Silas. So Dave Cowan's probably not because he is a Hall of Famer, but a guy like Paul Silas might be a good subject for a future Sports Forgotten Heroes 
Uh, yeah, he played for a decent team when he came up, St. Louis, the Hawks, and he actually played with the uh, Phoenix Suns before going to, to Boston. Yes, and didn't he? I think he ended his career in Seattle, didn't he? I think he won. I think he was part of yes, the team that won, won the title yep, in '79. Yep, '79. He 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 played with uh, uh, the SuperSonics. Played one more year, '79, '80, and then uh, called it a, called it a career. Who, who did he play '79, '80 with? With Seattle. With Seattle. Oh, Seattle. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah he, I mean, he was a great rebounder. Paul Silas may not have been a great scorer, but he was a great rebounder. He was tough. He was sort of like. He was sort of like Ricky Sobers was for Phoenix, even though they played different positions. Paul Silas, uh, you didn't want to mess with Paul Silas, and he was strong, and he could rebound the ball. And like I said, he probably didn't average more than 10 points a game for his career, but uh, um, he was a force underneath. Right, so let's let's we're going to start getting into the game. So Silas, his minutes per game were up by almost ten minutes from thirty-two point nine during the regular season. Uh, by almost three minutes, I'm sorry, from thirty no ten minutes, thirty-two point nine during the regular season to forty-one point two during the playoffs. Why? Wow. What was it about his game that he deserved such an increase in playing time? Well, you know the playoffs. Uh, even today seem to be a different animal than the regular season. A lot of people say teams during the regular season, especially the really great ones, they, you know, you'd like to think that NBA players give it their all 82 games a season, but, you know, unfortunately sometimes maybe they don't, but in the playoffs, it's a different story, kind of like pitching in the, in the playoffs in Mm -hmm. baseball. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that his minutes uh, shot up that much for the playoffs, but, you know, it was the playoffs, and the, the Celtics had been embarrassed by Washington in the Eastern Conference Finals the year before, and they wanted to uh, they wanted to win the championship, which had been in their second in three years. Mm-hmm. And Paul si- Paul Silas underneath, um, banging and rebounding. I you know apparently Tom Heinsohn felt you know it's time to win, boys. Sure. Well, when you look at Cowens, Silas, and JoJo White, they certainly didn't disappoint. In fact, Cowens, who averaged 19 points per game and 16 rebounds per game in the regular season, upped those totals to 21 points per game during the playoffs, just over 16 rebounds a game during the playoffs. Wow. Silas averaged just over 10 points per game in the regular season and playoffs, but he increased his rebounds per game by nearly two. And JoJo, JoJo, I mean, he went from 18.9 points per game to almost four more, 22.7. Uh, you know, he wow. had a heck of a series, too. So let's get into this game. Um, the series is tied two games apiece. And uh, we're in, we're playing in Boston. It's the Garden. And the Celtics look as if they were going to blow out the Suns. In fact, the Celtics jumped out to a 20-5 to lead and eventually upped their lead to 36-18. to yeah. What was Boston doing, and why did Phoenix have so much trouble in that first quarter, thirty-six to eighteen in the first quarter? Well, backing up a little bit, Phoenix. Uh, let's 
see. I'm pretty sure Boston swept all four games from Phoenix during the regular season, and I think they had won the last two against them in 74-75. So Boston was on a six-game winning streak against Phoenix, I'm pretty sure. And the first two games in Boston, Phoenix complained complained majorly about the refereeing. Mm -hmm. And then the two games in Phoenix where Phoenix tied the series, the Celtics complained about the refereeing. So going into that game (laughs) five, and Rick Barry, who played for Golden State at the time, was part of the CBS broadcast team for game five with Brent Musburger. And Rick Barry had, I think he had said something on the, uh, maybe game four in Phoenix broadcast that incensed the Boston fans. I don't remember what it, what it was, but going into that game five, um, you know, the game started at nine o'clock on a Friday night. So the people who were going to the game had like four or five hours from the time they got out of work to drink, um, and get revved up for the game. So there are a lot of drunk Boston fans at that game. And, you know, as you know, they became a huge part of the game. But uh, the game, um, one of the guys I spoke to was Bob Ryan. He he wasn't the Celtics beat writer that season, but he, he had been their beat writer for a while. He was covering the Red Sox that season. But according to Ryan, who was able to go to some of those games, he said that Celtics' first probably uh, 18 minutes of the game in the first quarter and midway going midway into the second quarter – was probably the best basketball they had played all season. That first about 18 minutes of the game, they were yeah. they were doing everything right. They were just uh, everything everything was going right for them, and they built a 36 18 lead. And I think 36 18 was maybe a little bit into the second quarter. I don't remember what the score was after one quarter, but they did lead 36 to 18, and. Um, you know, Phoenix Phoenix just had, all season long, they had a never-say-die attitude. They only won 42 games during the regular season. They were only two games above five right. in the yeah, regular they was, season. They were not and the they, number they, one seed. And, you know, before Gar Hurd got there, I think their record was like 18-27. and 27. I think they were nine below five hundred before that trade. And then when Van Arsdale got hurt, I think they were something like 22-30 and 30 or 22-31. and 31. So they... You know, they were on their way to a non-playoff season until Gar Hurd and uh, Rick, uh, Ricky Sobers uh, got there, or Sobers started playing, but or starting. But anyway, so Phoenix, uh, you know, had, had ever ever since those two moves happened, they, they, they just seemed to have a never-say-die attitude. And I remember a lot of the guys telling me, we, we, we never quit. We felt we could beat anybody. We felt... We could definitely beat anybody at home because as as the Suns progressed during the regular season and into playoff contention, their fans were just going crazy, and uh, uh, and um, into the playoffs they got even crazier, and they just slowly, methodically cut into that lead, cut into that deficit. Excuse me, and. You know, it wasn't like they scored uh, 15 straight points. No, I mean, just, I, Boston, Boston even upped that lead to 22 points early yeah, in the second yeah, quarter. Yeah, and I no one, so. yeah, I And no so. one in their right mind would think that this game had the potential to be one of, you know, the greatest games ever. I mean, yeah. you're down 22. Yeah. Phoenix is down 22 <laughs> points early in the second quarter. Game yeah. five against an experienced NBA championship caliber team in the Boston Celtics. I mean, 
you know, there is no way Phoenix is coming back. But sure enough, they were able to slow things down and start chopping away at the lead. What did they do differently? I I wish I would have been able to talk to John McLeod to get his answers to that question. But, you know, I watched the entire game and took notes and they, they just, they just continued playing their game. They just they just continued doing what got them there, and that's every every guy doing his role. And um, obviously, the shots started falling a little bit more. And you know, by halftime, I think they I think the lead was about what twelve points, twelve or fourteen points mm-hmm. at halftime, something like that. Yeah. And and then you know, before you knew it, I think I don't know maybe late in the third quarter. Or uh, you know they got uh, they uh, well it, know, was, it, was, it was it was it was it was with it, yeah I mean you know it was just over five minutes to go in the third quarter somehow when Al, Al, Alvin Adams uh, sunk two free throws with just over five to go in the third quarter and the Suns had amazingly battled all the way back to make it sixty eight sixty eight. I mean, okay. the Celtics and their fans must have been stunned. The Celtics, they were in survival mode because they knew if they lost, blew this lead and lost this game, they'd have to go back to that crazy madhouse on McDowell. I think they called the Arizona Veterans mm-hmm. Memorial Coliseum the madhouse on McDowell because of how crazy the fans were. They did not want to go to Phoenix for a game six down 3-2. And they, they were, you know, after the game, it was almost like they weren't even celebrating. They were just relieved that they won the game. So they were just in survival mode. Phoenix didn't have anything to lose. Phoenix mm-hmm. was the underdog. They had nothing to lose. And they played like it. You know, they, they, they played like it. Uh, you know, they... Uh, well, I want to know. I want to know. I want to know what John McLeod said to these guys to keep them in the game. It's a, it's a shame you couldn't have gotten. You know, that that he wasn't available yeah. because, I mean, he must have given them some sort of speech. You know, but you did say back on the bus when 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 Van Arsdale went down, he talked yeah. to each player. What kind of team do you want to be? And he must have right. done something similar. Yeah, I'm. I'm not I'm not 100% sure about that. I I have a feeling, you know, he may have given him a speech, I don't know, but you know, he he also he was a he preached practice. He 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 felt you practice well, you're going to play well. That's what I remember some of the players telling me. He he was a he was a player's coach and he he preached practice. And it's very possible that he he said, you know, you're getting good looks Let's, the the shots are eventually going to start falling. I don't know. I don't know if he gave a, 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 a you know a speech at halftime or, or a speech whatever. But uh, you know, and I don't think the Suns really changed their game that much. I think they just kept they just kept doing what got them there, and thinking eventually the shots are going to fall. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's what happened. They they kept they just each guy did his role. The shots started falling. And before you could blink, it was sixty-eight to sixty-eight, like you said, and it was uh, from that point on, it was it was, you know, it was uh, World War Three. Well, all right, Roger. Now I need for you to go back and 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 recall what happened here. The fourth quarter, 
Boston was able to manage a few spurts to take slim leads, but Phoenix hung tough. By the end of regulation, it was 95-95. But there was a lot of controversy during the final seconds of that fourth quarter. And what happened could have changed the outcome of not only the game, but the entire series. Tell us about it. I was thinking that was the end of the first overtime, but you're right. It was the end of regulation, correct? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, This is where Paul Westfall, as a future coach, you know, this is where Paul Westfall might have really begun his uh, coaching career was in game five of the 76 finals. Um, It was 90... I think Phoenix... uh, Let's see, it was 94... Somebody made a free throw, and I think the game, and maybe missed the second, but it was like, I think it was 95 to 95, and, um, uh, no, wait, the, that was at the end of the second overtime. Okay, no, th- this is what happened. No, the, the Westfall thing didn't happen until the end of the second overtime. What happened at the end of regulation was, um, Paul Silas with like three seconds to go or one second to go. It was 95, 95 and Silas called a timeout right in front of Richie powers face. Richie powers was the referee or the official uh-huh. and Boston did not have any timeouts left. And when you call a timeout and you don't have any timeouts left, it's a technical foul. And he, Paul Silas called this timeout directly in front of Richie Powers' face. Richie Powers saw him call for timeout, and Richie Powers did not call the technical foul. I think there may have been one second left, or it might have even been no time left, and it had Powers called the technical foul, Westfall would have been the one to go to the line, and he would have probably hit the free throw, and Phoenix would have been up three games to two, heading back to Phoenix for game six. And there's a lot about this, a lot of quotes about this from both sides in the book. Um, there's varying stories from what different people said. Some people said Richie Powers didn't want to see the game end that way. Some people said Richie Powers didn't want to see Boston, you know, lose that way. Um, and, you know, years later, I think on a golf course somewhere, Richie Powers ad- admitted that he, he did see uh, Silas call the timeout, but uh, apparently he just did not want to see the game end that way. But a lot of the Phoenix players felt he didn't want to see the Celtics lose that way. So there was a lot of uh, controversy. Um, but uh, as it was, they went to the first overtime tied, I think, at 95, and the Silas timeout was never turned into a technical foul like it should have been. And they went on into the first overtime. Yeah, I'm going to read straight from the book here. Uh, Silas said in the Globe, it was not a smart play on my part. Richie was looking right at him and chose not to call it, said Westfall. Rick Barry said, I thought Phoenix got screwed. Richie Powers said, and and this is, you know, Barry saying that this is what Richie Powers is thinking. I choose yeah. to I chose to ignore his request. What the hell was that? That's your job. Yeah. It would have been a technical foul, and Paul Westfall 
probably would have gone to the line and made the yeah. free throw, and that would have been the end of the game. It was horrendous. Yeah. I felt badly for Phoenix because they got hosed. That was ridiculous. John McLeod said in the Globe, Richie didn't want Boston to lose. Westfall would have made the technical foul shot, and we would have won, and we would have had game six. I'm still angry about it. How many chances yeah. do you get to win a championship? Um, and it, uh, and it one of the, goes on and on. One, and, and and But here's the best one. I, I'm sorry, Roger. Here's the best one. Um, about two weeks later, Jerry Colangelo, in an article... Uh, that was written in the Globe, said a local Phoenix golf pro named Joe Porter was playing in the Westchester Classic. He saw Richie Powers at the bar, and he asked him why he didn't call the timeout. He says that Richie said, I didn't want Boston to lose like that. If you ask me 25 years later, do I think he meant I didn't want anyone to lose like that or Boston to lose like that? I'll say the latter. And one of the guys said it was one of those things that we as players and coaches have no control over. It was wrong. It was one of those things that it's been stuck in our craw for 45 yeah. years. Yeah, Boston really lucked out there. They really lucked out. All right. So, and, yeah, go you ahead. You know, that, 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 that situation uh, sort of presented itself when Westfall was in that situation at the end of the second overtime. Yeah, so what happened there? Tell us about that, because at the end of the first okay. overtime, the game is tied at 101, and after the second yeah. overtime, it's 112-112. Tell us what yeah, happened. Yeah, there, there wasn't really much exciting ending of the first overtime when it was 101-101. So the end of the second overtime was just uh, crazy. Um, Boston was up, I think it was 109-106 with about 17 or 18, 19 seconds left. Curtis Perry hit about a 15-footer, made it 109-108. I'm pretty sure it was Westfall who stole the ball on the inbounds pass, passed it to Perry. Perry tried a shot and missed, and then he made a about a 15-footer with about four or five seconds to go. So Phoenix was up 110-109 with about four or five seconds to go. Um, Boston called time. Pavlicek got the ball at the inbound pass, drove to the hoop, made an incredible bank shot, and uh, the clock ran out. Everybody thought Boston won the game 111 to 110. Um, fans were covering the court and celebrating. Some of the players on both sides were in the locker room taking their, uh, getting ready to take a shower, taking their clothes off and their shoes off and stuff. And it turned out, um, even though they, even though they uh, didn't do instant replay back then, um, they ended up putting one second back on the clock. And when it was announced that they were going to put one second back on the clock, one of the fans attacked Richie Powers, and he was this fan was seriously throwing punches, <laughs> and uh, took. A, I'm sure no one on Phoenix couple, came to his defense. Right in the middle of the court, in the middle of everything, and uh, one, a couple security guards and some of the players pulled the guy off of Powers. And um, so after all the fans were, uh, you know, removed from the court, they got the players back out to play one last second. <clears throat> it was one, it was, it was uh, 111-110 Boston with one second to go. Phoenix got the ball at half court, 
and I forget who inbounded the ball, but uh, they actually the, the the play they wanted was to inbound it to uh, I think to Westfall, but I think he was covered. So the guy threw it into Gar Hurd, who was about twenty two or twenty three feet out on uh, on the right side uh, beyond the foul line. And he turned around and shot one of his patented rainbow jumpers. And Gar Hurd always shot those patented rainbow jumpers. And it just switched through the hoop, fell through the hoop. And, oh, God, am I telling this right? That Okay. All right. Can I back up a little, Sure, uh, go ahead. Absolutely. All right. No, no, no. Okay. When they decided to put one second on the co- on the clock, this is where the Westfall story comes in. All right, it was it, Boston was up one eleven, one ten, one second to go. Paul Westfall, um, remember John McKay, the USC football coach, doing something along the same lines in football, and that's what gave him the idea. Is what John McKay, the UCF, the USC football coach, did one time when he was watching a game on television. I don't remember exactly what McKay did, but th- that's what gave Westfall the idea. And Westfall decided, even though we don't have any timeouts left, I'm going to call a timeout. He actually asked Richie Powers, what would happen if I called timeout and we don't have any left? And Powers said it would be a technical foul. But Westfall decided to do it because if he hadn't called the timeout, they would have had to go 94 feet. But if he called the timeout, they would get the ball at half court and have a chance. So he called the timeout. I forget who shot the free throw for Boston, probably JoJo White. That made it 112 to 110 Boston with one second to go. And then the ball was inbounded to Perry, and Perry made made that rainbow jumper from about 23 feet to tie the game at 112 and force a third overtime. So Westfall, the coach, really, uh, show, really came alive there because I'm not even sure if he uh, told John McLeod what he was going to do. He may have mentioned it to McLeod, but he might have done it on his own. Uh, but he called that timeout because he knew they had no chance if they had to go 94 feet in one second, and so that's what that's what got brought it to a third overtime. Wow! So yeah, I mean, just these crazy endings to these quarters, with the exception of the uh, 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 first overtime. Um, so it's one twelve. What, what, what did you say about the first overtime? It wasn't as crazy an end to the first overtime right. as right. it was to the fourth quarter and the and the second yeah. overtime. Um, yeah, but that third overtime was was quite the battle. Uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about that third overtime and how Boston was finally able to put the put the Suns away one twenty eight to one twenty six? Yeah, it was um, that third overtime. Paul Westfall made some shots that were just, you, you you couldn't figure out how they went. And there was one shot he made where he literally did a 360 in the air and, and, and banked in a shot from about 13 feet. Uh, Boston uh, was pretty much ahead. Most, I don't even know if Phoenix, I'm not sure. I don't think Phoenix ever had the lead in the third overtime. I don't think they did. No. Um, but, uh, you know, they sure battled the back. End, they tried to battle back, though. They uh, it was it was uh, it was one twenty eight to one twenty two with a, probably less than twenty seconds to go. 
They made it 128-124, probably by Westwall making a shot. And then uh, I think somebody stole the ball, and then they made it 128-126 with about four or five seconds to go. And then Boston threw it in, uh, uh, and Westfall came inches away from making another steal, uh, inches away from it. But he got the ball on his hands, but he fell out of bounds, so he didn't get the steal at half court. And JoJo White ran out the clock, and the final score was 128 to 126. But like I said, Boston was not in celebration mode after that game. They were in we survived. They were so scared that they were going to lose that game. There there really was no celebration going on in the Boston locker room from what I was told. It was more we survived. They they it was they it was a matter of survival for them. Um and you know Dick Van Arsdale was I think I used this quote in the book. He he said that uh it's really a shame that we lost that game and lost that series because it would have meant a hell of a lot more to the Phoenix Suns than it did to the Boston Celtics. Sure, absolutely. Well, I encourage everybody to get a copy of of your book, Roger. The greatest game ever played, 6-4-76, Phoenix Suns versus the Boston Celtics. Um, terrific book. It's it, it really uh, you talk to a lot of people. It makes the book fun to read. You know, a few people we did not go in depth on, but who played absolutely terrific basketball were Curtis Perry. We talked a tiny bit about Gar Hurd. Perry for the I, Suns. You know, he dropped twenty. Yeah, yeah. I also want to mention in the th- in the third overtime, I think it was two bench players for Boston scored some huge points when I think Charlie Scott fouled out and I think Dave Cowens fouled mm-hmm. out. Jim uh, Jim Ard, a bench player, and Glenn McDonald, another bench player, they made some crucial shots and crucial free throws in that third overtime that uh, that were you know very, very crucial for Boston winning that game because I'm pretty sure Scott and Cowens had fouled out so Jim Ard and Glenn McDonald deserve a lot of credit. Absolutely. And, you know, we didn't even talk about the great John Havlicek, who scored 17 for Boston that day and pulled down nine rebounds. What a game. Uh, again, a really, really nice book that that, that you've written here, Roger. Um, Thank you. Uh, what are you working on these days? Um, it's pos- uh, Me and a, a friend of mine, uh, he's an author as well, in fact, uh, I'm so honored that he, he suggested that we co-author a book. Um, he, he actually just wrote a novel, and it, there's a chance it could be turned into a movie. So it's kind of an incredible oh, cool. situation going on for this guy. But I think we're going to co-author a book about the uh, greatest NFL uh, playoff games of all time. Oh, very fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading that. Well, Roger, I want to thank you so much for joining me again on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Always fun to talk to you. Whenever I need something on Cleveland, I know whom to give a call. Was not expecting this out of you, but it was a fun book. Again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I appreciate you having me. The series between the Celtics and Suns was wrapped up in Game 6 with Boston winning 87-80 in Phoenix. Charlie Scott was the high scorer with 25 points and Dave Cowens led both teams with 17 rebounds. For Boston, it was their 13th NBA championship. In fact, it was Boston's 
13th championship in 14 tries. For Phoenix, their improbable run to the finals obviously didn't end the way they had hoped. And they thought this was going to be the beginning of a long run of trips to the finals. However, it wasn't to be as Phoenix didn't make it back until 1993 with Paul Westfall at the helm. The Suns ran into the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. Phoenix lost that series in six games and haven't been back since. As for JoJo White, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2015. Paul Silas, well, he didn't have a Hall of Fame career, but he did wind up coaching for quite some time. He was the head coach of the San Diego Clippers for three seasons, the Charlotte Hornets for four years prior to them moving to New Orleans, where he coached the New Orleans Hornets for one year, the Cleveland Cavaliers for two seasons, and then he went back to Charlotte to coach the new Charlotte Bobcats for another two seasons. Dave Cowens was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1991 and also coached Boston, the Charlotte Hornets, and the Golden State Warriors. Alvin Adams played 13 years for the Suns and wound up averaging 14.1 points per game, 7 rebounds per game, and just over 4 assists a game. And all 13 years he played, like I said, were with Phoenix. Ricky Sobers bounced around, playing for five teams over the course of 11 seasons, averaging 13.3 points per game and dishing out 4.3 assists per game. Certainly good numbers. For Westfall, who sadly passed away on January 2nd of this year, he enjoyed a wonderful 12-year career, six of which were with Phoenix. He averaged 15.6 points per game and handed out 4.4 assists per game. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame not too long ago, 2019. He also coached several teams, leading the Suns into the NBA Finals in 1993. He also coached the Seattle Supersonics and Sacramento Kings. Okay, thanks again to my guest today, Roger Gordon. Look for his book, 6476, Phoenix Suns versus Boston Celtics on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. And I want to thank all of you for listening today, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to 
sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>